Hello, my name is Roger Henderson, and I'm a GP in the southwest of Scotland, and I also co-host the GP Notebook Study Groups. Welcome to this GP Notebook podcast, where we discuss bite-sized topics aimed at all those working in primary care. Now, you can find us on all major podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. So do please follow us to receive notifications about new episodes, and, if you like what you hear do please consider leaving a review to help other listeners find us. It really does help. You can also follow us on Twitter, at GP Notebook, for more information about new podcast episodes and study groups, and I'm also on there too, at Roger the Doctor. Finally, you can visit gpnotebook.com for podcast episode show notes and to find out more about upcoming study group meetings. Now, in this episode... This has been requested by our viewers, and as always, GP Notebook is keen to hear the opinions and requests of you, so please do contact us for suggestions for future episodes. So in this episode, I'm going to be discussing hemorrhoids, which has been requested as a topic by one of our viewers. So to start off, hemorrhoids, as we all know in practice, are extremely common and can be seen in all age groups from mid-teens upwards But typically, I tend to find that the peak incidence is around 45 to 65 years of age, with men and women being affected equally. They are essentially caused by increased pressure within the anal submucosal blood vessels, and this causes swelling of the cushions and laxity of supportive connective tissue. And there are multiple predisposing factors to hemorrhoids including constipation or even chronic diarrhoea, straining or a prolonged time sitting on the toilet, things like a low-fibre diet, regular heavy lifting or a chronic cough, pregnancy and childbirth, and increasingly obesity. Sometimes cirrhosis with ascites can be a trigger, which is something we sometimes forget about. Now, they can be internal or external, as we know. And essentially, there are three vascular mucosal cushions in the anus that protect the anal canal during defecation and help maintain continence. But if these cushions become abnormally swollen, this is what we call hemorrhoids. So internal hemorrhoids originate above the dentate line in the anus, where there are no pain fibres, and so these are usually painless. And many people have these and are unaware they do have them. It's only usually when bleeding occurs or prolapse happens that that then prompts patients to seek advice. However, an internal hemorrhoid that's become strangulated or thrombosed is often a medical emergency as they can be tremendously painful. The more common external hemorrhoids originate below the dentate line and these are covered by squamous epithelium and so those are innervated by pain fibres. This is why external hemorrhoids can be both itchy and painful. Now, it's estimated around 30 to 40% of sufferers have both internal and external hemorrhoids at the same time. And as we all know, hemorrhoids may be an isolated occurrence, they may be episodic, or they may be chronic. Now, when we're taking a careful history from a patient with hemorrhoids, there are a number of things to talk about. 
especially the possibility of any red flags that suggest we may have a, a pathology going on that is not hemorrhoid-linked. So obviously, any red flags such as a first instance of rectal bleeding, that should always be investigated, if bleeding has lasted more than a few days, if there's blood mixed within the stool, if there's an altered bowel habit from normal, if there's abnormal weight loss, or if there is significant unexplained abdominal pain. Now, mild to moderate cases, fortunately, usually respond well to lifestyle changes and topical treatments. And so simply by advising our patients to increase dietary fibre and push up their fluid intake usually helps ensure that stools pass more softly and easily, and usually just that by itself can cause a, a, an episode of hemorrhoids to gradually settle. You can suggest stool softeners or fibre supplements if constipation's a problem, and don't forget to advise about increasing physical activity to help improve bowel movements. We sometimes do forget to mention that. One of the things we should always mention is the importance of good anal hygiene. So keeping the area clean and dry does aid healing, as well as reducing irritation and itching. So rather than wiping post-defecation, cleanse with moist wipes and gently dab the area dry. And advise against stool withholding. I remember an old professor of surgery at mine as, of mine as a medical student always used to say, boys, never ignore a call to stool. And I never really understood why he said that, but it was actually because of this. And I'd try to avoid straining during bowel movements, if at all possible. Now, symptom management at a very simple level is really quite easy. So advise about warm baths or ice packs and use simple analgesia, such as paracetamol. However, it's important to remember that we should be avoiding opioid-based analgesics here, such as codeine, because obviously they can tend to constipation, which is the last thing that we need. Also, avoid anti-inflammatories if there's bleeding. And again, that's something perhaps we can forget. Now, topical hemorrhoid preparations are typically used morning and night, and after a bowel movement, and these include gels, creams, ointments, although some may come with a nozzle for internal applications or suppositories. So for internal hemorrhoids, those are the ones that we can use. And they often contain several ingredients, and you almost pays your money and you take your choice here. We've got emollients to ease the passage of stools and just generally protect against sore skin. You've got mild antiseptics to reduce the risk of any infection. Sometimes they've got mild astringents in them to help reduce blood supply to the hemorrhoids as well as reducing swelling. Local anaesthetics can be really helpful because they obviously can give relief from itching and pain. And corticosteroids can help reduce swelling, redness and itching. However, a couple of points here important to remember. If you're using a product containing a local anaesthetic, these can cause skin sensitization and longer-term use of preparations containing corticosteroids can cause problems such as skin sensitization, but also skin atrophy and even contact dermatitis. Now, although there aren't any topical hemorrhoid products licensed for use during pregnancy and breastfeeding, we do know that these are safe. 
and NICE guidance generally states that the potential risk of harm to the pregnant woman and or the fetus is much likely to be less with simple soothing products than those containing corticosteroids or local anaesthetics. And I think that's obviously a, a straightforward thing to be saying. Very occasionally, you may have had to admit or refer someone with hemorrhoids. So consider admitting someone with extremely painful, acutely thrombosed external hemorrhoids who present within 72 hours of onset. And this is because excision or reduction may be needed. Occasionally, internal hemorrhoids which have prolapsed and become incarcerated and thrombosed may require a hemorrhoidectomy. And although I've never seen this, but it is a potentially life-threatening complication, don't forget that perianal sepsis is a possibility here. Now, treatments available in secondary care may be non-surgical or surgical, depending on the symptom severity as well as the degree of prolapse. And we all know about these, but just to remind ourselves, non-surgical treatments include rubber band ligation, injection sclerotherapy, and infrared coagulation or photocoagulation. So rubber band ligation is easily done. A band is applied to the base of the hemorrhoid and quite simply, that strangulated hemorrhoid then becomes necrotic and sloughs off. The underlying tissue undergoes fixation by fiber optic wound healing and you can band up to three hemorrhoids at one visit. And this is very often the best outpatient treatment for hemorrhoids. Only about two in 10 people need a second banding within about six months for symptom control. Injection sclerotherapy is where phenol in oil is injected into the submucosa of the rectum around the pedicles of the hemorrhoids. And this induces a fibrotic reaction, then obliterates the hemorrhoidal vessels and causes hemorrhoid atrophy. And that provides very good short-term benefit in most people. If infrared coagulation or photocoagulation is needed, this can be as effective as rubber band ligation and injection sclerotherapy in the treatment of first degree and second degree hemorrhoids. And it simply involves using infrared energy to produce an area of submucosal fibrosis, leading to mucosal fixation and a reduction in the tendency to prolapse. I'm just going to touch on surgical treatments because these are required less often than they used to be, but they still are sometimes necessary. Obviously, hemorrhoidectomy still occurs, but only symptomatic hemorrhoids are excised as this conserves the sensitive anoderm for continence. And surgical hemorrhoidectomy confers the best long-term effect with less than 20% symptom recurrence. However, post-operative discomfort can be significant, and there is also the possibility of infection. In a stapled hemorrhoidectomy, a circular stapling gun is used to excise a donut of mucosa from the upper anal canal and lift the hemorrhoidal cushions back within the canal. Again, infection and discomfort can occur, but fortunately, serious complications are rare. Some people can use hemorrhoidal artery ligation as a treatment option using a proctoscope, but recent evidence questions the efficacy of this 
compared to conventional treatments because frequent repeat procedures are often needed to achieve full symptom improvement or cure. So I hope that you've enjoyed this very brief overview of hemorrhoids and thank you very much for listening. Please do have a look at the show notes that accompany this episode at gpnotebook.com and we'd be very grateful if you'd consider following the podcast and leaving us a review on your favourite podcast platform. Do feel free to get in touch via social media at gpnotebook or email us support at gpnotebook.com if you have any questions, comments or ideas for future podcasts, as in today's podcast. You should also visit us at gpnotebook.com to register for our virtual GP Notebook study groups and to download free shortcuts to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. But, as always, until the next time, goodbye.